Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that in this period of lockdown, things in my family have got a little bit strange. One of my brothers has grown a beard, while the other brother has become a ladies' hairdresser, cutting his wife's hair with, with a kind of bendy thing with a spirit level on it. And my dad, who's with us this morning, he's begun to bake bread for the very first time. And Maggie has taken so many pictures with her phone that it's given up and it's broken. And then in our household, one of the most recent strange phenomena is that some people have started to speak with an Australian accent. I think I need to explain that one. Because that's because we've just finished watching an old series of My Kitchen Rules. That's an Australian cooking competition. And after watching and listening to all those episodes, and it goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks, some of our family have started to think and talk a bit like them. And that's something actually many people have recognised. When we fix our attention on something or someone, it impacts us and we're influenced by them. We become what we behold. The more that kids watch their parents, for example, the more they act like them or speak like them or sometimes even look like them, whether that's a good thing or not. And that happens with fans as well. Uh, Sometimes they, they, they end up looking like they're idols. Years ago, when the soccer player Paul Gascoigne signed for Rangers, suddenly a whole load of boys and young men around our area started to bleach blonde their hair, just because he did. And this is one of the ways, actually, that God uses to change our lives. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's because focusing our hearts and minds on him will help us to become more like him and to follow his example in our lives. So when Pilate, in his trial, brought Jesus out before the people and said, here is the man, Or as some translators put it, behold the man. Little did he realise just how important his words were. So this morning we are going to behold the man. We're going to take another look at Jesus. And hope that, that God will use that to help us to become more like him. So we're going to read from John chapter 19. And verse 1 down to verse 16. And Leona is going to read for us this morning. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! 
But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered. You would have no power over me if it would not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gavatha. It was the day of preparation of the it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, "Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him!" Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So last week we started looking at this trial of Jesus. And we saw that it was actually Pilate who was trapped. This pragmatic politician whose focus was his own interests, he was caught between two opinions. He was afraid of directly rejecting the demand of the Jews to kill Jesus. He was afraid of inciting a riot, as that would have been seen in Rome as his failure and his career would have suffered. However, at the same time, Pilate didn't really want to condemn Jesus. Part of this was because he despised the Jewish leaders and he didn't want to please them. He also knew it was out of envy that they'd handed Jesus over to him. They were just protecting their own position. But this was also because Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. In fact, Pilate declared this three times during Jesus' trial. Last week we read that after talking to Jesus, he declared, I find no basis for a charge against him. That's chapter 18, verse 38. And in our reading... When Pilate brought Jesus out in front of the crowd and declared, here is the man, he again declared that Jesus was innocent. So verse 4, I am bringing you out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And then verse 6, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And this judgment was actually confirmed by both King Herod and also by Pilate's wife. During this trial, she sent a message to Pilate saying, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So Pilate declared Jesus was innocent. But Pilate's words actually had more truth in them than even he understood. Because Jesus was not just innocent of any crime, he was completely innocent of any sin. Earlier in John chapter 8, Jesus said to the crowd, can any of you 
prove me guilty of sin. And nobody could, despite all of their accusations. Right throughout his life, despite all of the temptations, all of the spiritual attacks that he endured, Jesus never sinned. Peter writes about him in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus never said anything, he never did anything, he never even thought anything that was in rebellion against God's standard of holiness. He is perfect, holy, pure, he is completely sinless. That's why when Jesus was baptised, and also on the mountain where he was transfigured, God declared from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And that's a real challenge for us this morning. Because if we want to follow him, if we want to have fellowship with him, if we want to be friends with Jesus, then this is the standard that we need to accept. Again, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.15, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. If Jesus is so holy, then, then this is the standard he calls us to. But of course we're not like that. Loads of people could prove us guilty of sin. We are not innocent in God's sight. We've messed up. We've rebelled against God. We've broken his commands. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the sinlessness of Jesus this morning is not just a challenge to us. It's also an amazing comfort. That's because his sinlessness meant that he could be our substitute. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took our place, he took upon himself our blame, he experienced our punishment, he died our death. So if we put our trust in him, then we can receive his righteousness. We can be perfect, we can be clean, we can be holy and accepted in God's sight. And so this morning, we can rejoice that we have been redeemed. That we have been set free. Not through our own efforts or achievements or religious duties or rituals or any of those things. But we've been set free with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Three times Pilate declared that Jesus was innocent. But that didn't mean that Jesus was released and rewarded for his righteousness. 
When Pilate brought Jesus out to the crowd and declared, here is the man, he was showing them a man of suffering. After the people chose to free Barabbas rather than Jesus, Pilate had tried to come up with another strategy, another scheme. He thought that the crowd would be satisfied if they saw Jesus in pain. So Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now there were three levels of Roman flogging at that time. The, the most severe, called verbatio or something like that, that was given to prisoners just before crucifixion. It was with leather thongs fitted with spikes or bits of bone or lead. And it was so brutal that prisoners often died as a result of it. Now we don't know whether this was what was administered to Jesus at this point or not. But what we do know is that what Jesus experienced here was just the start of his incredible physical suffering. Our reading goes on to say, verse 2 and 3, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they struck him in the face. The thorns of this mock crown would have dug deep into Jesus' head. Especially as Mark tells us that as well as punching him in the face, again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Jesus' body would have been a mess. Open wounds, swollen face, covered in blood and spit. In prophesying about this, Isaiah said that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. And that's not all that was going on here. Jesus' heart must also have been broken. These soldiers, they heard that he was called the king of the Jews, so they decided to have some fun. They clothed him in a a purple robe and went up to him again and again and said, Hail, king of the Jews, mocking him. And then when the Jews saw Jesus, they responded with equally horrific hatred and venom. Instead of being moved to pity in the sight of of his suffering, this crowd were stirred up to shout, crucify, crucify. I don't know if you've experienced much ridicule in your life, but to be laughed at, to be belittled and rejected, especially by those that you love, is excruciatingly painful. And Jesus loved all of these men. Jesus had created their inmost being. He had knit them together in their mother's womb. Before they were, had been born, he'd seen their unformed body and ordained all their days before one of them came to be. And he'd come from heaven to earth to rescue them. 
He had laid aside his majesty to bring them into life in all its fullness. And here they were, beating him up, making fun of him, throwing everything that he had given them back in his face. Again, Jesus, Isaiah described it so powerfully in his prophecy in Isaiah 53, written about 700 years before this event. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But this suffering had an even deeper meaning. This, what Jesus was going through, was not empty pain. God was working in this. God was working through this. And he was doing it for you and for me. The crown of thorns actually tells us this. In the Garden of Eden... Way back in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve rejected God's rule in their lives and they rebelled against God's commands. And one of the results of this was that God said, this is Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. So since then, thorns are a reminder that through our sin, we've cursed this planet and our lives. They teach us that we are the cause of the suffering and the struggle in this world. It's human beings that have caused all of this mess. But this crown of thorns... It was placed on Jesus' head. So he was taking the curse instead of us. He was bearing our sin. He paid the price that we deserved. He died as a sacrifice for us. Maybe that's why John recorded Jesus' silence in front of Pilate. When Pilate heard of the Jews' accusation that Jesus must die because he claimed to be the Son of God, Pilate was scared. Because as a pagan, he believed in many gods. Was it possible that one of the gods had come and was standing now in front of him? And so Pilate asked Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Maybe this was because Jesus had already answered this question when Jesus told Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. But I think we're also supposed to see in this silence a reminder of what Isaiah again writes in Isaiah 53. He says, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was the lamb who was heading for slaughter. 
He was voluntarily laying down his life for us as a sacrifice. And this also matches what John wrote about the timing of these events. Did you see in verse 14 of our reading, John said that it was the day of preparation of Passover week. About the sixth hour. Now there's some debate about whether this is six o'clock in the morning or or midday, noon. But it was on the Friday of Passover week. It was on the day that the Passover lamb, a lamb that had to be without defect, this lamb would be slaughtered to be eaten that night on the Passover meal. So I think we're supposed to remember again John the Baptist's words when he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is what is happening here. This is who Pilate is presenting to the crowd. Behold the man. A man of intense physical and emotional and spiritual suffering. A man who was suffering as a willing sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. As John writes in his letter, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is who we need to fix our eyes on this morning. But why? Surely seeing Jesus like this is unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. So why do we need to consider Jesus in his suffering as a sacrifice for us? Well, one reason is because we so often minimise what sin is like. We say things like, oh, sin, it's just a little mistake, or it was just a poor decision, or it's just a little white lie, it's just a bad habit, it's just the way I was brought up, it's just my personality. But the brutality and the cruelty that Jesus experienced here shows us the true nature of sin. Because sin is always destructive and deadly. It's an ungrateful and selfish rejection of God's rightful place as Lord of our lives. And it always leads men and women and young people to do the most horrific things imaginable. And so when we see the suffering of Jesus, we see sin in all its horror. And we should hate what is evil. And cling to what is good. But we're also supposed to see in this suffering, not just the cost of our sin, but the cost of our salvation. Of course, we've not yet come to the cross yet. But we can already see that as the willing sacrifice, Jesus suffered for us. And this is the ultimate proof of his love for us. In a world where we can look at so many different aspects of what's happening in our lives and what people are doing to us and all of those things, and we can question whether God loves us if if he allows those things to happen to us, we can look at Jesus 
And we can see that he is the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As Megan sang so beautifully about in our song this morning. But this is also not just the cost of our sin, not just the cost of our salvation. It's also the cost of our discipleship. The night before Jesus' trial, he had warned his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And when we look at Jesus, standing there in front of that crowd, we can see what he's talking about. What kind of hatred Jesus is talking about. What level of hatred he's talking about. And so we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us. And we don't need to panic. When we are unjustly accused or ridiculed or attacked. Because to this you were called, as Peter says. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's 1 Peter 2.21. Following Jesus means that we must follow in his willingness to suffer unjustly in this world. But not because it's an empty suffering, not because there's no purpose in it, but because we know that God is working for our good in it and through it. Just like he did through Jesus' suffering. Not that we are paying for our sins, because that's a once and for all sacrifice for our sins, but God is working in our suffering. And he is accomplishing his purpose through it. And that means that if we do go through these difficult times, if we do get experience that unjust accusation or attacks, then we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to seek revenge or retaliation. Instead, we can follow Jesus' example. That when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's verse 23 of 1 Peter 2. So when we unjustly suffer at the hands of others, we can rest in knowing that God will sort it out. He will vindicate us at the right time. So fixing our eyes on Jesus in his suffering helps us to keep on going when it is difficult and when it's costly. It helps us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Because this is our act of worship. So the man Pilate presented was one who was a suffering, who was suffering as a sacrifice for us. But that's not all that we can see here. The Jews, they wanted Pilate to kill Jesus because he claimed to be the son of God. And in a sense, they got that right, didn't they? Jesus did claim to be the Son of God, equal with the Father. 
But as we've seen throughout this gospel, this wasn't a false claim. This was simply a true revelation of his, of his identity. And so the rejection of Jesus was tragic. Because if they'd only accepted him, then they could have been sons of God themselves. Because John had written in John chapter 1 and verse 12, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But Jesus wasn't only presented as a son here, he was also presented as the sovereign. The soldiers, they dressed Jesus in a purple robe and a crown of thorns to make fun of his claims to be the king. And Pilate brought Jesus out to the Jews and said to them, here is your king. Now some people think that Pilate was just doing this to ridicule the Jews, saying something like, well, look how pathetic your king is. But I'm not sure if that's all that was going here, going on here. By this time, Pilate had been impacted by spending time with Jesus. When Jesus refused to answer his question, Pilate said, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? But Jesus was not intimidated by what Pilate said here, by his claim to have power over him. Instead, he responded, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Pilate's position and his power was ultimately given by God. And so God was in control here. Now, that didn't mean that Pilate was not responsible for his actions. He was. But it did mean that Caiaphas and the other religious leaders, they were more responsible. Because they'd been given a greater revelation of the truth. They should have known better because they had the scriptures that should have pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And Pilate was so impressed with Jesus' answer here that from then on, it says in verse 12, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate wanted to set Jesus free, but he chose not to because of what the Jews said. Because they shouted in verse 12, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. The Caesar at that time was this guy, Tiberius. And he was not someone you would want to get on the wrong side of. So Pilate chose friendship with Rome instead of friendship with Jesus. He chose to be a friend of Caesar rather than a friend of his creator. But even more shocking is the fact that the Jews made the same choice. They rejected Jesus as their king. They said, we have no king but Caesar. They turned away from God and his anointed one. They chose friendship with the world instead of friendship with the Messiah. But John, he wrote his gospel so that you and I would not make that same mistake. 
he wrote that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We can't be friends with Jesus and friends with this world. We need to make a choice. So today, if we turn away from the world and instead we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust in him as God's son and as our king, then we will be brought into life in all its fullness. We will become sons of God and we will one day reign with him. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So when Pilate presented Jesus to the crowds that day, He had no idea how significant his words were. But if we behold this man, then we can become like him. He is our sinless substitute. The one who took our sin so that we could receive his righteousness. He is our suffering sacrifice. The one who gave his life for us so we could live in him. And he is the sovereign son of God. The one who died so that we could be children of God and we could reign with him in glory. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you. Thank you, Father, for this this beautiful passage of your word, Lord. That despite how horrific uh, what it describes, despite all of the suffering and the brutality and the cruelty and the hatred and the venom that's, that's described in these words, they point us to your wonderful son. They point us to Jesus, the one who came to be our saviour, the one who came to be our sacrifice, the one who died in our place as our sinless substitute so that we could be declared righteous in your sight, so that we could be adopted into your family as your children. So that we could look forward to the reality that we are one day going to reign with Christ. Not because of anything that we have done. Not because of any of our achievements or good works or efforts. But simply because we've received it as a gift from you. A gift of your amazing grace. Given to us through through the, the sacrifice of Jesus. So Lord I pray. I pray that none of us would, would follow the example of Pilate and, and the Jewish leaders that day in choosing friendship with the world instead of friendship with Jesus. 
Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would turn away from this world and put our trust in Jesus, accept him as our king, as our saviour, as our friend, as our Lord. That we would give our lives to him fully. We would allow him to continue this process of transforming us and making us more and more like him. Till one day he comes to, to take us to be with him forever where we will be like him because we will see him face to face. Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to make that right choice, that we'll fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.